what what's this what's this podcast called again? Freely filtered. Freely filtered. <laughs> That's right. It's been a while. Welcome to Freely Filtered, the twice-a-month podcast that summarizes and pontificates on the most recent NefJC Journal Club. NefJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the articles that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and is not intended to give medical advice. You should talk with your doctor before making any medical decisions. This podcast may discuss off-label indications and unlicensed medications or medical tests. If you have questions, talk to your doctor. As Dr. Vardabedian says, we may be doctors on the internet, but we are not your doctors on the internet. My name is Joel Toff, but both people know me better as my Twitter alter ego, Kidney Boy. I'm a private practice nephrologist in Detroit, and tonight I'm joined by Jenny. My name is Jenny Lin. I am a physician scientist and assistant professor at Northwestern University. I run a basic and translational lab in kidney and cardiovascular studies, and uh, my I tweet at Jenny J. Lin. Swapnil. Hi, I'm Swapnil Harmat. I'm a nephrologist, epidemiologist. I work at the University of Ottawa. I usually go by Swap on Twitter, and I'm usually critiquing and disagreeing and arguing with people on Twitter when I'm not working. I tweet at H Swapnil. Samira? Hey everyone, my name is Samira. I'm a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. I tweet at the handle at SS Farouk, and I love NefSim, my uh, interactive mobile optimized teaching tool that uses case-based learning to teach nephrology and more. And tonight we have uh, a special guest, uh, Perry Wilson. Hi, thanks for having me. My name is Perry Wilson. I'm an associate professor of medicine at Yale University in New Haven. I am a, a clinician researcher. Uh, my lab focuses on interventional data science, which is applying tools like real-time analytics and machine learning to real-life patients and trying to intervene on them uh, right at the bedside, hopefully before something goes wrong. And you can find me on Twitter at MethodsManMD or on my website, which is MethodsMan.com. Um, and I've also got a weekly column on Medscape where I talk about medical studies that I find interesting, um, and that's on medscape.com. This week, we're doing a study uh, which we're seeing more and more of in medicine. It's the use of big data and machine learning to either do the work of the physician, like we are seeing in radiology and pathology, or provide doctors with a new insight to help them take care of patient. Here, a company called DeepMind, which is now owned by Google, used a massive database from the Veterans Administration, 700,000 patients, to try to predict the occurrence of inpatient acute kidney injury. They used an artificial intelligence technique called recurrent neural network and were able to have actually pretty impressive results. Overall, their sensitivity for detecting uh, AKI uh, stages 1 through 3 was uh, 55% with a specificity of 82%. And that is they required the development of AKI to occur within 48 hours of their prediction. So uh, it wasn't they make a prediction and a month later they could develop AKI. And if you take a look at those numbers and you compare them to NephroCheck, the only current licensed uh, test to predict AKI, they have a sensitivity of 62% and a specificity of 82%. So this machine learning or artificial intelligence was as good as a lab test. 
And it's interesting that if the VA were to implement this, right, because this study was completely done retrospectively, but if they were to implement it, they would result in about 3% of all hospitalized patients getting an alert on a daily basis. So uh, with that, we're going we're gonna to start off with uh, Swapnil going over uh, the methods, and we're going to keep uh, Perry in the bullpen uh, to answer questions that we come up with and see if we can uh, puzzle through this study. Swap, you want to get started? Sure. So in, in terms of some more background, the originals of DeepMind are with uh, Deep Thought, which was one of the first computers, first, I don't know whether you call it a supercomputer, developed at IBM, uh, which was then followed by what was more famous, the Deep Blue. Deep Blue was a computer that uh, famously defeated uh, Gary Kasparov uh, many years ago. Now, that was, of course, IBM, and DeepMind has nothing to do with IBM. It's a company based in, founded in Cambridge. Uh, that's why you will see some of the authors are uh, British in 2010. Like Deep Blue defeating Gary Kasparov, one of the big successes of DeepMind was the development of AlphaGo which was a computer, um, again, based on neural networks, a computer that defeated uh, uh, the highest ranked Go player, which is an order of complexity higher than chess. Anyway, so it's the same company. It said, hey, let's move on to health. Uh, and it is this is DeepMind Health, uh, which has been taken over by Google, and it's now called Google Health. Uh, the other interesting thing is that they have been working with the UK National Health Services for quite some time. Um, and perhaps they had developed something there already, but uh, they had used data from the National Health Services and there were some concerns about, you know, privacy and whether patient information had been handed over. It was a, a big scandal uh, featured on the BBC and The Guardian in 2017. So I think all that was shelved and they started all over again, which is why they came to the U.S. Um, in the U.S., they got access to uh, U.S. De- Department of Veterans Affairs uh, healthcare system, uh, over 1,200 facilities, and this this was de-identified. It included inpatient as well as outpatient sites. So what do they do with this data set, right? The, this data set contains everything about all kinds of information about uh, the patients. Now, naturally, this is U.S. Department of Veterans, so as we can discuss later, it was mostly men, uh, which, you know, limits generalizability a little bit. The ages are uh, 18 to 90, uh, which were the included criteria uh, and the two patients who were admitted for secondary care to medical or surgical services for about uh, roughly four years from uh, the fall of 2011 to the fall of I'm sorry they were admitted for did you say they were admitted for secondary surgical procedures is that what you said no no secondary care for you know any medical or surgical services so it's not like primary care not primary talking. care got yeah, it okay yeah. Um, and they needed at least a year of uh, health record uh, data uh, before the admission. So they needed some kind of baseline da- data before they were admitted to make sure they had enough information to work with. Um, as far as outcomes were concerned, they, you know, again, they have all sorts of lab data. So it's easy to identify the KDIGO uh, AKI definitions, um, increase in serum creatinine within 48 hours, whether it's an absolute rise or a, um, a relative rise. They did say that, you know, urine output was also considered, but then you have to go to the results to see that. Um, most EHRs uh, don't document urine output that well, especially, you know, in the right uh, time frame that it is needed. So this criteria was really not, this criterion was really not used. So they have the population. That seems to be, in these studies over and over again, urine output, it seems to be ignored. It, it, we just don't seem to capture that information over and over. And Perry, any, any comment on that? Yeah, it's really hard to capture. So even in ICU patients, when you're looking retrospectively, and they're, you know, these are patients that presumably are getting strict eyes and nose, you will 
pull that data and it's just really hard to work with because oftentimes it's reported on a per shift basis. Sometimes it's only reported on a per 24 hours basis. And of course, the official KDigo AKI definition requires a six hour window for urine output assessment, which no one records. Um, so you're always sort of trying to translate eight hour urine output into a six hour time frame. And most of us end up just kind of getting frustrated with that and deciding that the data is too muddy to uh, to really work with. Um, but it's a, it's certainly a problem. But when you when you actually do studies that have looked at urine output carefully, they pick up cases of AKI that aren't picked up by changes in creatinine. Absolutely, 100%. And the magnitude of sort of badness associated with oliguric AKI in the absence of a rising creatinine is still pretty bad. These patients do bad. They go on to develop more severe AKI. They go on to dialysis. They go on to die. So it's not, we sort of ignore these patients at our peril, um, but it's tough data to work with. Yeah, exactly. So the before we go on to how the model was developed, the question is, you know, in any prediction model, the question is, what are you going to throw in? So in this case, of course, they had artificial intelligence, which is going to look at all the information being thrown in. But they, they actually chose, uh, they, they, for comparison, they uh, chose some, you know, they used um, natural intelligence, if I can say that. So they chose some features based on the consensus opinion of the six clinicians who were involved. There were uh, a nephrologist and a couple of intensivists and three residents with clinical expertise in nephrology, medicine and surgery. And then they put in additional stuff such as the you know demographic information is thought to be important of course um, the reason for admission to the ICU vital signs including blood pressure respiratory rate oxygen saturation uh, and then they put a lot of labs so if you look at the labs which is you know it, it's put on our website but you have to dig into the supplementary data for the labs um, it's not only serum creatinine urea nitrogen potassium uh, sodium phosphate chloride calcium ESR white cell count C-reactive protein, alkaline phosphatase, uh, the liver function tests, all kinds of stuff, creatine kinase, uh, serum vancomycin level, interestingly enough, and the NIN gap. Uh, so a lot of labs that we may not always include uh, in, in any kind of prediction model necessarily. They had the ICD-9 codes for a lot of uh, acute and chronic conditions, which are reasonable, a bunch of medications, uh, which were also included. So uh, a lot of data is being included in these uh, this model. And when... We usually talk of prediction. The mindset that I'm used to is about, you know, an internal validation and an external validation. In this case, it's slightly different the way the words are used. So they had this huge data set and they divided that into uh, four different data sets randomly. So it wasn't, you know, uh, pre-decided. It was the, the number of uh, data points were divided into four sets. So, and there was a uh, 80% of it used was used for a training. And then 5% was used for validation, which is not an external validation. It's a validation of, I guess, the training. And then another 5% was used for calibration. And then 10% was the testing set. That's how I read it. Uh, but does that make sense, uh, Perry? Yeah, no, very, very well done. Um, um, so the methods in the study were were really good. I mean, really rigorous, and they hit all the right points. The the four different sets of data uh, are worth noting. So the difference uh, for people that aren't familiar with machine learning is that these machine learning algorithms, which are fundamentally classification algorithms, right? You're you're trying to predict whether this patient will or will not have AKI in the next forty eight hours from this point in time. Um, what makes the fancier stuff like recurrent neural networks different from good old fashioned logistic regression? which I'll mention is also a machine learning algorithm, is that they have all sorts of knobs and dials you can turn. 
uh, on the algorithms themselves. We, we call these things hyperparameters in the lingo, but basically they're knobs and dials you can turn. You can sort of fiddle with how many layers there are in the neural network and how the connections look between them and a number of other things. So <laughs> knobs and dials is not prior yeah, knob and dial trauma. That does not appeal to the scientist in me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, but you're right. It shouldn't because, because having all these knobs and dials means you can really play with the algorithm until you get really good performance out of it. And that would be cheating, right? Because you'll just be sort of overfitting to your data. And so machine learning algorithms, it's really vital that you have a training set, but then a validation set. So you're not evaluating your model on the same data that you trained it on because you'll just learn all the way. We call it actually memorization. The model will memorize your data set and give you the right answers as opposed to really learning from your data set and being able to extrapolate to other uh, pieces of data. So the validation set is critical. So you use the validation set to help you turn tune your knobs and dials in a fair way. The calibration set is a little is is cool and isn't done all the time. And the idea there is that the machine learning models are designed to improve the discrimination of a model, meaning that higher numbers are worse than lower numbers, which seems good. But calibration says, you know, if I say your risk is 10%, is your risk really 10%? Sure, 10% is worse than 5% and 10% is better than 20%. But do I literally mean that if I have a thousand people with a risk of 10%, that a hundred of them are going to have the the event, right? That is it calibrated properly. And the models are often not designed really to achieve that. So they use a little bit of data to take their model and sort of adjust the numbers so that the calibration works better. And then of course, because you futzed with it so much, you need a fully held out, completely independent test set at the very end to run your evaluation on. And you that's the most critical part. You always need that like bit of data on the outside that has never touched your model, that the, is completely new to your model to actually see how well it works. So are you kind of are you are you kind of helping the model by pre-specifying the what the prevalence should be, or is that is that not that not what you uh, meant? in terms of calibration? Yeah. Yeah. So calibration has a lot to do with uh, the prevalence in your population. And so a lot of times when models, even conventional models, get translated from one population to another, the discrimination works well, which is to say worse scores are worse and better scores are better. But the calibration is off because all of a sudden you're in a population that's just healthier. You know, you, you built the model in uh, Mississippi, but you're applying it in Colorado or something. That's usually just a calibration problem. And so that prevalence, that lower kind of overall prevalence becomes really important. So sure, that's so I have a that's couple a questions. Um, one is just from a purely academic standpoint, do reviewers who look at these types of uh, research letters or manuscripts, do they demand the uncalibrated results, kind of like you would submit unadjusted models in clinical epidemiology? Not not typically. In in fact, calibration is sort of rarely, it's, it's being increasingly asked for is to, is to report on your calibration. The general assessment of these types of things should be, I'm being a little flip, but like basically you can do whatever you want with your model except test it on the test set. And so so as long as you've kept your test set sacrosanct and your model has never seen it, then you can do whatever you want. And then you just, but at some point, 
when you're done and the model is the model, you press go and you run it on your test set. And to some extent, we're taking the researcher's word that they only did that once, right? Because if if they do that and they're like, oh, it didn't work too well in the test set, and then they go back and fiddle with the model some more, well, now right, it's not right. a test set anymore. Now it's not held right. out. So, you know, you, you could imagine a situation where like sort of upload your test set to some server elsewhere and have some, you know, lockdown. That that doesn't happen. We still just take people's words on this, which I think we sort of need to do. But no, basically, you're kind of allowed to twist those knobs however you want, as long as your test set remains pure. That What you're describing about that recursive work where you run the test and see how well it works and then run it again. That's You're just doing that in your testing population over and over again, right? You're using the validation set. Yeah. So it's just terminology. But so your, your, your training set is where, is where the model is getting learned. The validation set is your set that's not the training set, but that you've given yourself permission to try again and again and again. So how did, how did the recurrent neural network work? And in fact, in this paper, you can see if you dig into the supplement that this isn't just a recurrent neural network paper. They ran about 30 different machine learning algorithms, including good old-fashioned logistic regression on the data. And, you know, how do you decide which is the one you're going to go with? Well, you look at how it performs in your validation set and you say, well, you know, the recurrent neural network seemed to work the best in the validation set. So that's our, we're going to put our money on that one when we apply it to the test set. It's not fair to try everything on your test set and just report the best results. So That's one uh, practical question, you know, obviously different people across the world practice medicine differently. So they may be ordering different types of tests, but how do missing variables uh, end up affecting your predictive models? So like, you know, you, we maybe, you know, people in the veterans affairs hospitals and medical centers have a certain way that medicines practice, but say in the community um, in Iowa, they may be ordering completely different types of tests. Yeah. So there's two really good points there. One is how do you handle missing data, you know, just full, full stop. And the way they did, which is generally how it's done, is they created flag variables or the machine learning people call them one hot encoded variables. But flag variables basically say like, was it measured or not? So my typical example here is like serum lactate. So if I tell you that a patient had a serum lactate measured, even if it was normal, if it was one, you know that patient is at higher risk of a bad outcome, right? Because there's just information contained in the fact that someone ordered a lactate. So they'll create a binary variable that just says yes, no, was a lactate measured. Now, some machine learning algorithms, including the neural networks, natively can handle missing data. So they can treat a missing value of lactate kind of as its own category in some sense. Whereas other models can't do that and you have to impute something, you know, whether it's the median or, or some other fancy imputation method. So one issue is just like, is there information in the missingness? And I think there is. But the second and more subtle point is how does this affect generalizability? Because yeah, maybe that's true in the VA that lactate is a really important marker of illness, regardless of what the level is. But what if there's a hospital where the practice is just, you know, we measure lactate every day, like with a with a basic metabolic panel, we just measure lactate. That's what we do. So now all of a sudden that variable in the VA that was so important that like flag, did someone check a lactate is flagged positive in this new hospital all the time, because that's just what they do. Everyone checks a lactate every day. So that is a real external validation problem. And I think the more in the weeds you get with some of this stuff, like certain cultural practices, like things like chest X or frequent ch frequency of chest X-rays and stuff like you can get into trouble. So if I can add a couple of questions. Um, so the, the testing data set is the one that they used after the validation, after the training validation calibration was done. And they had decided this is the final algorithm. And the reports they are 
reporting and the results are from the testing data set as long as we trust them to do have done all this it's pretty legitimate but the second question i have is often you know when i see a prediction score there's nothing to stop me from using the prediction score and validating it in my data set to see hey you know does the prediction score in my data set in this case we can't really do that because not only don't i not have those powerful computers and neural networks but i think even the algorithm is sort of proprietary Yeah, this is a real problem. So the nice thing is that yes, it it can be, you know, these complex deep neural networks. I don't I'm not sure how deep this neural network was, but they can take a while to train and and you do need powerful computers to train them. But once they're learned, the math is actually very simple. So you could do it on your laptop. Once the network is learned, if you have the inputs, your laptop can generate the outputs. That is not computationally intensive at all. But the problems with this study are twofold. Number 1, the number of inputs is incredibly huge. I 600,000 different variables <laughs> that that go to wait, the wait, input wait, side wait, wait, wait. of the model. They found 600,000 pieces of data on each patient. It was 620,000 features. features. And I didn't quite know what that was. Yeah. So features is machine learning word for variables. Um let me talk about the features or variables for a second and how you get to 600,000. Let's imagine that I have a uh, potassium measurements on a patient over time. And now it's Tuesday at 9 a.m. and I measure their potassium and their potassium is 4.5 milliequivalents per liter. But there's more built into that potassium at that point in time because that 4. there's that 4.5 the level of potassium. There's the change in potassium from the prior measurement. There's the average potassium over the past 24 hours. There's the slope of potassium over the past 24 hours. There's the standard deviation, there's the coefficient of variation, right? So the single feature or the single variable potassium, I can turn into like 30 things at that time point. Right, right. Everything can be exploded. Any one of which might be important. And and my lab has frequently hypothesized that these like exploded variables, you know, the change in x or the 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 slope of x would be really important. I will tell you that we've often found that it's the absolute value that matters <laughs> and you know, all these fancy shenanigans don't make much difference when it comes to prediction. Nevertheless, they use this technique to really explode a lot of those longitudinal variables into multiple dimensions and then all of those go into the neural network, right? So you need if you wanted to do this at your hospital, you need 600,000 features going in on the input side which is pretty darn hard to type into a calculator online and then it's <laughs> <laughs> like oh I'm almost done TI 83 five, five more minutes what is the someone calculate the coefficient of variation for chloride um, and then and then but beyond that you need to know the structure of the network and they didn't provide that and that is eminently providable. So like any software package that learns a neural network, you can click a little export button and you can put your code on GitHub and it will have all the network connections and weights in place and anyone can use it. They do not provide that. So in academics or in you know in these publish publications and uh, journals, is that not a standard in the field kind of like with genomic data we're expected to deposit NIH I mean this is not NIH funded but NIH funded data um publicly but is there not like a same expectation for that in AI there is not i th- i mean a lot of people are arguing for that and most of the open data people would certainly do that i also think that open data is important here because as we've sort of alluded to like we're taking the researchers word on a lot of stuff here and that's that's okay i i know a lot of these guys and they're good people but it would be really nice to be able to validate all this stuff ourselves right so yeah it's a it's a shame that we don't have access to this model in any sort of tangible form. Do you think that's cuz they're Google? Google is not evil. 
That's very 2002 of you. <laughs> but they, they do say, you know, if you look at the end on the data availability and code availability, they sort of say we make use of several open source libraries and they, you know, name TensorFlow and TensorFlow library with the GitHub links. Uh, but they say our experimental framework makes use of proprietary libraries and we are unable to publicly release this code. So, I mean, it... Does it mean they're hoping to make money of it and package and sell this algorithm eventually? I mean, we can speculate, but Probably. That, that's the only thing I can think of. Maybe for your Google Pixel phone. October 15th. <laughs> um, yeah, let's let's not spend time to speculate about this. I, don't th- I think this doesn't go anywhere. Fair enough. Useful or interesting for the talk. I mean, <laughs> it's, the data is not provided and we can pretend that we know what's behind deep minds, yeah. you know, profit motives. Let's just skip that. Can we, I think an important thing to talk about is the outcomes. Cause here you're talking about, we're going to do these very precise measurements and coefficients of variabilities and all these variables to get to an AKI definition, which clearly one of the driving forces for creating KDGO stages one, two, and three was make it easy for the docs. Right. We're just going to, and it just, it does seem a bit reductive to that at the end of this immense computation, we get, oh, the creating, uh, chance of creating going up by 0.3 or 50%. <laughs> and that was, uh, that was, uh, Frank Harrell wrote a blog post uh, on data methods about it, right? I, I think what he was trying to say is that I read every word of that blog post and I had no idea what he was trying to say. Can you walk me through that swap? I don't think I can walk you through that. I have never read anything by Frank Harrell. That has not made me feel dumb. <laughs> <laughs> that may be the goal. <laughs> here, here, here. So Frank's point is, and biostatisticians and really good ones in particular fail to understand one little thing. So his, his basic point was, why are you categorizing change in creatinine when there's more information in change of creatinine? Why, why predict AKI? Why don't you just predict what the creatinine is going to be tomorrow? And then if that's greater than 0.3, you can say they'll have AKI. But why are you predicting this? dichotomous thing when you can predict the continuous thing, right? And get all this extra information, which I think is a really good point. What oftentimes statisticians fail to understand is that we have to write these methods and have our peer reviewers sort of like understand and appreciate them. And they are very used to categorical predictions. You know, will this patient die? Will they not? Does this patient have cancer? Do they not? And saying, oh, my model has a root mean squared error, which is pretty low for predicting, you know, the change in creatinine on an absolute scale over 48 hours like loses something and it's just a harder sell. But I think they're right. But but Joel, your point that this outcome is of dubious clinical import is a good one. But I, I also think that I don't think their goal here was so much to like crack the case on AKI, right? I think this was a bit of a show of force. I think it was like, it almost didn't matter what the outcome was. It was demonstrating the power of the method. Like proof of principle for AI. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you could substitute, obviously, with the same framework, you could replace that one or zero for yes, no, will this patient have AKI in 48 hours with yes, no, will this patient be dead in 48 hours? Yes, no, will this patient be on dialysis in 48 hours or any other sort of important thing? And we have some of that data. Uh, is there any other important part of the methods that we haven't hit or can we move to uh, results? Well, there's one really cool thing. Sorry, I, you can- Cool. No, no, I want to hear it. I want to hear if it's really cool. I'll tell you if it's really <laughs> well, cool. Well, I, I, I don't know if it's that cool now that I say it. Um, <laughs> 
one of the one of the nice little tricks they used here was these things called ancillary targets. So we're really used to predicting, you know, a binary outcome. And a lot of us who have done this have used logistic regression. We're familiar with that. You know, you sort of predict yes, no, is this patient going to be dead in five years? And neural networks can do that too. But they actually had their neural network simultaneously predicting AKI as well as the levels of certain lab parameters 48 hours from now, like the level of potassium 48 hours from now. And you might ask yourself, like, why would they force their network to do two jobs at once? And what it turns out is that when you force your network to do those two things that are kind of related but not the same thing, it causes it to learn more generalizable truths. (laughs) When you're only focusing on, will this patient have AKI in 48 hours, the model can tend to learn things that are like really specific to the situation that it's it's training in, right? Really specific to the VA. Uh, Other studies have found that addition of these ancillary targets, so it says not only do you have to be good at predicting AKI, you also have to be good at predicting potassium, sort of stabilizes the model in some ways. And I, I have rarely seen that in the machine learning literature in medicine, although it's all over the sort of marketing machine learning literature. And I think it's nice and um, something we should we should definitely keep an eye out. It, it's like these guys, they came from, you know, solving puzzles like uh, doing Go and probably marketing issues for Google. And it allowed them to come kind of with a, a fresh slate or uh, more uh, state of the art thinking when it came to uh, medicine. Jenny, you ready to, to tell us about the results? Uh, yeah. So um, I think you we've pretty much covered it, I guess, piecemeal throughout the discussion so far. But in terms of over half a million uh, patients that were involved, whose records were involved in this uh, study, the majority of patients you know, being from the Veterans Affairs Medical Centers were male, 18.9% black, and 10% had diabetes And the overall incidence of AKI, according to KDIGO criteria, was 13.4% of hospital emissions. 55.8% of inpatient AKI events were predicted uh, within 48 hours. And this was using a 33% precision model. Can you can you tell me what what does that what does that mean that they used a 33% precision model? Yeah. So Perry, we may need your help on that. Precision is a positive predictive value. A 33% precision means that if you've done it correctly, that 33% of the people that have that level of prediction or higher will go on to develop AKI within 48 hours. Oh, because you get a score and you yeah. need to you need to set some point where that score is going to be positive. Right. And you can set that score very high. And then every time that person hits it, they're going to have AKI, but you're going to miss a lot. You're going to lose a lot of your sensitivity. But they lowered their specificity down. So it's about, they get what they, two two wrongs for every right is what they ended up with. That's their 33%. And there at that level, they have a sensitivity of 62%. Got it. And so basically, and so we can talk a little bit about the false positives, right? And in terms of utility, when we go to discussion, let's see. And then the other notable thing that I picked up at least you know, from as a clinician, one thing that I was interested in was the time between model prediction and the actual AKI event. And it seemed like the model worked better closer to the called event, which, you know, when we discuss the different variables and tests, what are all the different factors? Are the patients looking sicker? How sensitive is creatinine? you know, further out. And so I think those were the main highlights. And what was also interesting was in the supplement, they did include uh, some case uh, examples of what this model worked well for and what it did not work well for. So the example provided um, in one of the supplements was for a surgical case um, for someone with heart failure. 
And then the one where it didn't perform as well, maybe there were more variables, as you can imagine, for someone with sepsis. So I thought those were like the main highlights that I took away from. I thought that was interesting. They talked about, you know, we have our, our KDGO 1, 2, and 3, which was their primary Correct. outcome. But they also said, hey, let's take a look at the people that require dialysis. Mm-hmm. And uh, here they extended the time horizon to 30 days. But they were able to pick up 84% of the patients that were going to have dialysis requiring AKI. Yeah, which is impressive. And yeah. so... Yeah, right? Yeah, I would say that's... Well, I don't know. That's probably more impressive than the other, (laughs) like the more mild cases of AKI. What's the con there? So predicting dialysis is really easy. (laughs) Um, In the... You sort of learn that there are sort of hard prediction tasks and easier prediction tasks. And predicting dialysis and, and predicting inpatient death actually are are two that are are not that hard. <laughs> and and I'm basing this on just prior studies that have done this kind of, of work, you know, without a multi-billion dollar corporation behind them. And I think it's because it's a little more deterministic. You could probably look at someone's chart and say, you know, do I think this patient's going to end up on dialysis or not and be reasonably correct. And if if I gave you more data and let you kind of run longitudinal, you'd be really correct. And if I asked you three hours before dialysis started, you'd probably be right 99% of the time, right? It's not that hard. (laughs) The other thing, because the long time horizon, I really like this short time horizon part of the study because it's really actionable. And a lot of research in prediction in medicine is a single prediction. You make a prediction when the patient's admitted or when they get sent to the ICU. And then that prediction is supposed to last until, you know, the end of the hospitalization. As a physician, if you tell me when a patient gets admitted, oh, your patient has a 30% chance of having AKI, this admission, I'm sort of like, Okay, but you know, I don't know, that could be, you know, that's just their kind of baseline risk. Whereas if you tell me they have a 30% chance within the next 24 hours or 48 hours, I might actually change my behavior. And one of the things they don't tell us here is the timing when they cross the risk threshold. So like this 33% precision, right? They tell us how how far before AKI it happened, but they don't tell us how quickly it happened after hospital admission. And this would be a really interesting graph to see. Because I suspect that some patients entered the hospital above that level, right? Yeah. One of the examples, they showed an example that was like that. The very first data point is already crossed. Very, very first data point. And I always wonder, what do we do with these patients, right? The person comes in, they they have CKD, they have a crown of 3.5, they have diabetes, they have CHF. Every single time they walk through the door of the hospital... They're going to get dinged, you know, this patient's at risk of having AKI in the next 48 hours. And that may that may be true, actually, but it's also kind of the base state of, of, of where they are. Mm-hmm. And so I, I sort of wonder about that. And when you talk about predicting dialysis within 30 days, I don't know, you know, how bad would we be if we looked at a bunch of patients on admission and predicted who would get dialysis in 30 days? We might do okay. Well, one mm-hmm. thing that I think might be an elephant in the room is, you know, we are using data that... I think is not optimal for AKI, right? Like creatinine is not the best marker of early injury. And this is something that people in the AKI world harp on all the time and why we need more research for it. But in computational biology, there's always a saying, garbage in, garbage out, right? <laughs> so like we're feeding suboptimal data into you know, this model, um, and so, you know, what is the utility in applying this for practice? And if, you know, we're already behind 48 hours because of a rising creatinine um, late, you know, what is the time? Implementation is where this has to go. And it, it's frustrating. You know, this model is not implementable. It's just not. 
it's it, there's too many features. We don't even know the, what the model looks like, what the structure is. But even if they put it out, it can't be done. If you're doing this in real time, right? You want to build an alert system that's going to notify your your docs when their patient has a new increased risk of AKI imminent AKI, so to speak. You want a model that has, I would say, tops 20 variables in it because trying to make sure that all those things in the electronic health record are like up to date and working and connected properly is kind of a full-time job. I'll give you a very brief example. We have an acute kidney injury alert trial going on at my hospital, triggers off of serum creatinine. And one day, there were a bunch of false positive alerts. And it was because they recalibrated the creatinine machine and all the creatinines were 0.1 higher. And so a bunch of people that didn't have AKI then had AKI and then they corrected the results and those people went away and there's a bunch of false positives. That is a single variable that messed up because they recalibrated the lab machine. Now imagine... 150 variables in a model, right? Someone's got to be keeping an eye on all of those because all of a sudden, oh, we're bu- no, now we're buying vancomycin from this other other pharmaceutical company and it's labeled differently. So now everyone has a zero for vancomycin exposure, even when they really are exposed to vancomycin. These things are really problematic. So we need kind of parsimonious, simple models to implement. And then the question is, okay, let's say we can do that. Now what? What do we tell our providers? And I'm curious what you all think. Like, what do we tell our providers when- they get that annoying pop-up alert that says, hey, you know, your patient we think might have it be at high risk of AKI in the next 48 hours. What What's the like, here's what you should do part of that equation? Consultant cannot make that determination. And then you move on. <laughs> <laughs> Please correlate clinically. <laughs> so in fact, what happened in, remember your trial that we had discussed, uh, the one that you had presented on FJC Live, as well as that was published in Lancet, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. Um, wasn't there like people didn't do anything with the alerts? Is that, isn't that sort of what happened, if I recall correctly? The, yeah, that, that, that trial, which was a, a single alert to the covering provider, there was no difference in progression of AKI dialysis or death rates. Um, we do have a larger multicenter study randomized trial going on now where alerts are actually built into the EHR. They pop up. They Multiple providers see them. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. We've recruited about 5,500 people so far. So it'll be really interesting to see how that changes behavior and if it changes outcome. But the general consent. Well, what was the what was the, the pediatrician, the ninja yeah, trial? Yeah, Stu Goldstein. The intervention trial. there. What was Stu it? Goldstein from Cincinnati Children. Stu Goldstein, yeah. And their their intervention there was like we're just gonna we're just gonna track number of nephrotoxic medications and they had a positive result right they've been implementing it around that's the right country, yeah that model yeah right? so they that that's a that's a, a targeting it is it's risk based targeting um, in this case their risk model is that the kid is on either three nephrotoxic medications I think or an aminoglycoside for more than three days. Um, and I think that's it. I mean, it's a simple model, right? It's like a few variables. And then they say, you know, uh, if, if that's the case, then a pharmacist kind of comes in and talks to you and you measure creatinine and, and you sort of figure stuff out. So it's a high, it's a high touch intervention. You've got someone actually talking to you, right? As opposed to just kind of flashing something in your face, which, which is more expensive, but maybe works better. Do you think that if this happened in the adult population, that more patients would be subjected to renalism? Like they may not get that cardiac calf that they may need if they're predicted <laughs> to have AKI or they may not get the full coverage, antibiotic coverage for their severe sepsis. 
Yeah, or they um, stay in the hospital longer because the providers are like, oh, wait, should we hold on to them because they are something bad might be happening? And, and so they stay in an extra couple of days. There are a lot of off-target effects here that we need to monitor for really carefully. Or even simple, like, oh, we'll stop the NSAID, right? And we're like, okay, that's great. Well, if you stop an NSAID, then what, are you going to put them on opiates? And then what's the downstream effect of that, right? So, like, there's consequences to all of this that really need to be thought through. And I don't think it's bad. I'm not nihilistic in saying, like, we shouldn't Mm -hmm. use these techniques to risk stratify patients, but we have to go into it eyes open. And I do believe that the randomized trial paradigm is the way to do this because none of us are smart enough to think of all the off-target effects. So, we might as well just randomize people and sort of look at the hard outcomes in the end. <laughs> and then yeah. and then we can backtrack and figure out if it was all opioid overdoses, right? I think over overdoses of IV fluids is, I think you're just kind of asking for it with this kind of alert. Um, most people, mm-hmm. I think, reflexively are going to do that. And I think that's a potential big concern. Absolutely. And the reality is uh, you might have to look, hospitalization might not be a long enough outcome. Because what if what happens is they stop the ACE inhibitor, the patient goes home, and they die three months later of their heart failure, right? Or six years later, they're on dialysis because they never resume the ACE inhibitor, right? Like there's, there will be uh, significant downstream effects that are that are difficult to capture. Let me just say this, you know, because there is a tendency when we talk about these algorithms and things to sort of say, oh, you know, the doctors know best and like, let's, let's trust the providers. But I'll give you some of our data, which shows, for example, that of patients who develop AKI, severe AKI, doubling of creatinine, while they're taking an NSAID, about 50% of them get at least one more dose of that NSAID within the next 24 hours after their creatinine has doubled. And that's across three separate hospitals and two different health systems. Consistent results. So we're not like, you know, we might not be that great at this. Yeah, the the randomized controlled trial you're talking about, it kind of reminds me of like uh, what Elon Musk is doing with the Teslas, right? He got all these cars that have self-driving technology in them. He hasn't turned it on in all of them. And so he absolutely is seen of accidents that his car could avoid, that he's just counting those accidents so he can show, hey, people that don't have this on are getting into all these accidents. And it's just, a, it's a it's a cold-blooded calculation, right? Just like when you do that RCT, you're going to be tracking the scores on people, on everybody. The, the, right. the randomization, right, will just be whether you notify exactly. anybody of the score. Yeah. Right. So you're going to be like, we know this guy's going to develop AK. We know this guy is in AKI right. and uh, we can't say anything. That's just, it's cold-blooded. <laughs> It's cold blooded, but it's it's what it's 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 how you. But get there's your answer, there, there's right? clear equipoise as we have demonstrated in this conversation. Oh, oh my God! Yes, we are so full. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the other results that we haven't talked about yet was how they explained their false positives. So these are patients that the the the, the machine says this patient is going to develop AKI, and 48 hours later. No AKI. And that was uh, two-thirds, right? They set it at two-thirds. And so, but they said 25% of them were patients uh, where they eventually developed AKI. It wasn't 48 hours. It was 50 hours or 52 or 56, which seems understandable, right? The algorithm is good. It's not perfect. It didn't nail the the time, but it was pretty close. And the other one that was interesting was 24% of them, the AKI had happened in the past, right? Like, like, I don't know if you count that. Like, I don't know what to do with that. I was like, isn't time unidirectional? How, how are you predicting things that have already happened? What's going on here? Yeah, I totally agree that the um, the ones that predicted too far in advance, right? Oh, we it wasn't 48 hours. It was 56 hours. Okay. 
you know, they report that. Uh, th- th- yeah. So that's, that's interesting. I-, I wonder how much of that are those like patients who walk through the door high risk. And, and so a- again, who I feel like intuitively are kind of different and that will behave differently about those people. The people that, you know, it flagged after they had developed AKI once. I mean, that's not, that's not useful. That, that really is a false positive that I wouldn't, take any partial credit for that one. Yeah, they said they would be able to filter that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, but I don't know about that. Uh, they, one of the nice things that they did, we, we didn't do this in our similar study. They allowed people to have multiple AKI events. The sort of simpler thing is that after the first AKI event, you just, that's it. That patient's done. We're not predicting anymore. We're, we're through. We're washing our hands of this patient. But, you know, practically speaking, patients can have recurrent AKI. Why shouldn't you predict to the second event? And they do that. But of course, if you're going to predict the second event, that means you're going to predict wrong after the first event, which is what you're seeing there. And so I don't think you get partial credit. I think that's just wrong. That's just a regular old false that's, positive. That's just a miss. Okay. Uh, Samira, what's your, what, I want to get your big picture, your wrap up thoughts. Uh, I mean, before this hour, did not really have a, any understanding of this. I feel like I maybe understand a little bit of it now. I think for me, the biggest question is still, what do we do with this information? But I think this chat has impressed me a little bit more with the methodology and kind of how innovative this this technique is. I think other than avoiding nephrotoxins, maybe double thinking the volume assessment, the actionable opportunities here are a little bit limited to me. Um, and I think we may potentially do more harm than good just with this type of model. But I think very cool that they were able to predict so many and tell the future a little bit. I think you guys are very spoiled with resident covered patients. You go out into the real world <laughs> to these community hospitals and you kind of see what's going on. And a notification that your patient may develop a kidney <laughs> failure in 48 hours would be welcome, welcome source of, uh, of, of sanity sometimes. And that was, um, that was sort of what the um, the author I think uh, forget uh, the first author joined the chat but what he was sort of saying is that you know you, we want uh, the doctors to do the important stuff like you know looking after the patient you know look at labs and think about prediction and that sort of stuff so in, in some ways you know I, I am very very skeptical I'll admit that this is kind of proof of concept it's very cool uh, I wouldn't really use this in any way until a trial shows that you know, the trade-off is worth it. Um, but maybe, you know, if, if this uh, relieves us of even uh, looking at all this information, we are inundated with information, right? Our e- uh, in the EMRs, there's a urine output, there's this and that and the labs. And I'm not sure, sometimes there may be signals I'm missing. Um, so some kind of a synthetic, uh, you know, synthesis of the information saying, hey, you know, look at this patient a little bit more carefully, uh, maybe uh, helpful, perhaps. Uh, that's the That's the most optimistic take I can give uh, on this. I kind of felt that the uh, the editorial that uh, compared the numbers so favorably to the Nephrocheck data was very fast and loose, right? Nephrocheck goes, gets a critically ill population and still is able to separate out AKI from non-AKI, like a group of po- a population that had a very, very high pretest probability of developing AKI. And they did it prospectively. You know, essentially all this data had been gathered and sat in a warehouse for years before they finally ran their computer program over. These patients, probably many of them are long dead before they're like, you know, that patient three years ago had a 25% chance of developing AKI. You know, Nephrocheck, very much more impressive. And I think it's a, a flattening of what they actually accomplished. Uh, to compare these two things. Speaking of novel biomarkers, kind of my vision for how this might end up being helpful, not right now, but maybe in the distant future, just thinking big, big, big. So I can say, hey, Google, would you be willing to fund this? Uh, (laughs) 
You know, if Google were my smart speaker to- just lit up, Jenny. You just launched, you just launched a million <laughs> smartphones. <laughs> <laughs> we'd be like, hey, Alexa, can you make this happen too? <laughs> right? um, yeah. yeah, so just basically if they if there were an entity that were willing to fund drawing, you know, biomarkers, say like if you had some sort of uh, inclusion enrollment uh, or opt-out enrollment uh, for inpatients. And we had a bunch of panels of novel biomarkers to test and had this data on patients. And all it was doing was basically being streamed into an EHR. There was nothing being done by specific investigator, specific site, but then actually being rolled into and you know, it, you know, nephrocheck biomarkers, NGAL, other things for cardiac, uh, sepsis, all these things that scientists are trying to test, you know, with mouse models. Hi, Matt, <laughs> you're listening. So all these things I think could end up being helpful, like the AI could be helpful and more powerful than the types of validation studies that are currently being done, just because we do need to see how those biomarkers interact with variables that cannot be controlled. And you really do need the numbers. But in order for that to happen, we need um, a benevolent uh, benefactor who's willing to pay for it. But I think this could be very powerful for rolling out that translation. Perry, do you want to give any final thoughts? I think uh, the, the team that did the study should be commended for a, a thorough and thoughtful job. It's a it's a really good opening salvo in what I hope is um, something that will eventually improve the lives of a lot of patients with AKI. Sounds like a lot of those authors will be reviewing your patients. <laughs> there's, there's that possibility, I suppose. <laughs> oh, you can add. <laughs> Excellent. This has been great. So uh, we're done with the uh, the glomerular filtration. We are on to the um, tubular secretion portion of the uh, of the podcast, where we each get to uh, endorse or talk about something that's been uh, eating away with us in the, in the last uh, week or six weeks in this case. Uh, Swapnil, you want to start us off? Sure. I was involved in a very surreal Twitter thread in the last uh, thirty six hours. I think. Uh, the reason I think it's uh, worth talking about is that I'm very sad to inform you that the uh, one of the Twitter handles that you have, all of you, I'm sure, have enjoyed uh, was the epic EMR parody one. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. So he yeah. has shut down, and I, it's he shut down as a result of a thread that I was involved in, and uh, the so that's the low point of that thread. Uh, the uh, high point of the thread was that in that thread, uh, Nassim uh, Nicholas Taleb. You know, the author of uh, Black Swan and all that. He called me an imbecile. Um, <laughs> well done! <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in good company. Uh, but it, it was a very funny thread. And, and it's interesting, Perry's here because uh, he, Epic and uh, I were the people who were criticizing Taleb. Uh, and the other, you know, it was a bunch of doctors who are fans of uh, Taleb. And, and, and he was quite correctly, he or she, whoever is behind Epic was, uh, I guess, his strong point for that person uh, because he's otherwise, you know, he stays on Epic. I'm, I'm calling him he. We talk well, about he was it. on uh, Mark, uh, what's his name's podcast? Oh. Uh, E.T. Show. Right, right. Experience okay. the cat. Experience the... Oh, so it's a guy? Explore the space. Explore the space. Yeah, okay. he's a guy. Okay, okay. So uh, he... had the Epic parody guy. Right, right. So he, he uh, like, uh, Taleb has uh, talked about homeopathy favorably. He's talked about statins being bad and stuff like that. So he was sort of saying that he, you know, uh, he's 
criticizing things out of his expertise and he should you know not do that um and i was sort of supporting him uh when the talib jumped in to call me names but uh, so i went back and looked actually and there's a podcast uh, where talib is talking about the number needed to treat so and he's saying oh you know if someone's got a mild uh, disease like mild hypertension uh the number needed to treat will be very very high like 67 and i started laughing because the number needed to treat for mild hypertension is close to infinity uh and the number even if you take a you know five year time horizon and even in sprint which was such a you know high risk population uh, the number needed to treat was like 83 and we were all jumping up with joy saying you know 83 was awesome uh, so <laughs> his understanding of number needed to treat and for a guy who does fancy math to use number needed to treat which is such a you know for for chronic disease it's really not the right stat probably not good at all for chronic yeah, disease yeah it right. was, it's just funny it's just bizarre but epics gone he's he shut down his uh, stream what and why did he why did he get shut down what did no, he no, he didn't he didn't he wasn't shut down i think he he got really um upset in that thread and uh, he started blocking people and and i guess he realized that you know this is too much you know he he was upset at himself perhaps and he said okay i've had it i'm done and uh, maybe he's left in a half and he'll come back uh but his last tweet is that i'm done by by and thanks uh, thanks for all the love oh. that's not a funny bit of uh tubular well, secretion horrible. but yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay jenny do you have a uh, tubular secretion i have a quick one and it's really a shout out to washu uh washu school of medicine for establishing a division of physician scientists so uh this ca- uh, i think got announced a few days ago where to address a nationwide shortage of physician scientists the medical school at washu is establishing a separate division to help nurture the career development of physicians who want to do scientific research and see patients and uh, this is really unique because at some research institutions uh, we have a lot of phd scientists and folks you know who are really talented in the bench but physician scientists have a special need in terms of need for protected time and also you know opportunities to be able to integrate more translational research um into their research program so i think this is actually a really unique opportunity and it's also it's both sponsored by burrows welcome um as well as washu itself and i'm hoping that kind of like nyu's uh, tuition free movement i'm hoping that this uh, establishment of a physician scientist division will also cause a movement of other medical schools to follow suit so i don't think dean eric nielsen is necessarily listening from northwestern but dean nielsen i would challenge you to also um, establish one where we are and i think this is also a positive uh, actionable um, i think result to that um, or a nice outcome or follow up to that new england journal article from earlier this summer that highlighted that only 1.5% of the physician workforce are physician scientists so hopefully this will help change that so shout out to washu well i wish you should tell the dean that we had all of our listeners follow his daughter's daughter. <laughs> yeah that's true brussels i still sprout. follow that on instagram <laughs> and i think we follow brussels sprout and we should at least be able to get uh, be able to get a physician sign a division of physicians yeah, the royalties scientists. from that that instagram profits <laughs> roll back into the research for that division right absolutely there's no other way to do it. Okay, so my my secreted filtrate or secre- tubular secretion is this book by uh, Nick Bostrom. It's called Super Intelligence. It is absolutely terrifying. So it is just a essay that talks about um, artificial intelligence and the possibility that we would create an intelligence 
that would be more intelligent than us. And he kind of walks through what that would mean. And the kind of the basic supposition is that as soon as there was a general intelligence that was smarter than us, it would likely work on making itself even further smarter. And this would, and a small difference in brain power with multiple recursions would result in an intelligence way beyond ours. And uh, we'd be absolutely screwed at that point. It is a very sober and methodical look at the technology and how this would happen. And uh, it's a good, it's not like a fiction book. It's just an essay. And it's just very well thought out, very logical, and ultimately completely terrifying. Perry, do you have uh, something that you want to promote? I wasn't aware. Um, uh, but yeah, we, 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 we spun right. on you. That's right. We're not very good at this job. <laughs> well, you know what? Um, I would like to, uh, I'd like to mention my wife, Niamh Wilson, who's a, who's a breast surgeon. She is much smarter than I am. And the proof of this is that she just discovered something, which I would like to share with all of the listeners here. You know, the, the powdered cheese packet from the Mac and cheese box. Of course. Yeah. yeah, of course. So it's delicious, <laughs> but it, it's nature's most perfect it, food. It, yeah, that's it, right. it turns out you can buy that in bulk. You go, you go, <laughs> go to Amazon.com and type in cheese powder and you will have multiple to choose from. You, it, she bought this giant canister of the powdered cheese and you can put it on pasta. Obviously, you can put it on popcorn. She's put it on vegetables. It's pretty amazing. So, uh, so I want to, I, I think that's, that's a, a good thing for everyone to know about. That's a perfect, that's the, be- that's the best one yeah. that we've had yet. If you guys were wondering what happened to Samira, she is on call tonight and a fellow called and she had to do her duty as an academic nephrologist and bow out of her podcast. That's a, that patient will not end up on dialysis. <laughs> okay. You guys take care. Talk to you.